Welcome to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight we are going to start with an update on the monkeypox outbreak, which is now worldwide. And I want to say that we're going to spend some time on this tonight because I think it's important to talk about, but I definitely don't think it's as much of a cause for concern as COVID-19, which very much continues to be the largest infectious disease threat the world is dealing with at the moment. And so, yeah, I think it's important, but I don't want to overplay it. I don't want to be overly dramatic. There are real concerns, but I don't think it's going to become the next global pandemic anytime soon. So there are now over 1,300 cases across the globe with 35 confirmed cases in the United States. We're going to come back to that number in a minute. The bulk of the cases remain in Europe, with England having the largest number of individual cases at over 300. The CDC now suggests to travelers that they exercise quote-unquote enhanced precautions. They warn against close contact with any when infected, including people with visible rashes, with dead or live animals, especially rodents like rats and squirrels, and non-human primates. They also warn against contact with contaminated materials, such as clothing and bedclothes, from an infected person. And as well, they also caution against consuming or preparing wild game. Um, We know that there is a lot of uh, zoonotic infections through bushmeat, uh, for instance, and so that's just another good precaution. If you are sick and could have monkeypox, delay travel by public transportation until you have been cleared by a healthcare professional or public health officials, the CDC said. Now, again, this stream, this strain, it seems to be particularly mild, with no deaths yet recorded, but deaths can happen from this particular disease. So it's not like the common cold necessarily. It's more like um, measles, which doesn't generally kill people, but can, uh, especially young children. The most prominent symptom for a normal case of monkeypox is a rash that progresses through several steps, starting with discolored patches of skin, then raised bumps, then blisters, and finally large pimples, which eventually scab over and fall off. The other symptoms are generally a fever, chills, headache, muscle aches, and swollen lymph nodes. And so that's how normal cases present. And we're going to talk about um, these specifics in relationship to the current strain, because it's a little different, actually. And so according to a recent morbidity and mortality weekly report from the CDC, monkeypox in the U.S. is still largely affecting men who have sex with men. But this is almost certainly down to the originating population and their particular circles of contact. 
they suspect the initial outbreak may be tied to several raves that happened in Europe. CDC urges healthcare providers in the United States to be alert for patients who have rash illnesses consistent with monkeypox, regardless of a patient's gender or sexual orientation or a history of international travel or specific factors for monkeypox, the MMWR report said. And again, while the chances of you becoming infected are still quite low, we do know that there must be more than 35 cases as the clusters show genetic variances that suggest that it has been spreading undetected for a while. We've also realized that this outbreak presents somewhat differently than the typical case of monkeypox. Some infected people have had only lesions in certain parts of their body or even a single lesion. Usually you would get the fever first and then lesions, but in some cases people are getting the fever after already presenting with lesions. And a reason that this could be spreading mainly among men who have sex with men is a lot of is that a lot of patients only have lesions in their genital area, which can look more like an STI rather than monkeypox. And so if you think that you're being protected, protective against STIs, it may be that you are, you know, not realizing that skin to skin contact can um, be problematic for monkeypox. This is probably the reason why we are seeing spread that is not being detected, in fact, because it's not presenting as normal monkeypox. And part of this is also that in order to test for the disease, you need to send secretions or scabs from lesions to one of a few specific labs. So it's not exactly easy to walk into your doctor's office and get officially diagnosed. Now, the FDA notes that the current issue is lack of sampling, but if sampling ramps up, there are indeed only 74 labs that can test for orthopox viruses, which is the group of viruses that the monkeypox virus belongs to, and they can currently process around 7,000 tests per week. So if this becomes a big issue, that could be problematic. But again, right now it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Now, one of the other reasons that we might have underreporting is that, well, monkeypox is not a disease that most U.S. doctors have familiarity with. It turns out that vaccines that we have are also not necessarily as effective as we might like. A small study in 1988 found an 85% effectiveness rate against monkeypox for the one licensed vaccine known as MVA, or modified vaccinia ancara. But we don't know the, the efficacy against the current strain. And so right now, the U.S. has 36,000 doses stockpiled and has ordered another 36,000. Now, because obviously that's not enough to vaccinate the whole country, they will be disseminated first to people who have had a known connection to a verified case. But of course, as we know from covid Contact tracing isn't always easy or thorough. Um, Canada is actually taking a different approach. It's currently offering the drug to men who have sex with men, having been the uh, majority uh, vector for the current outbreak. 
Now, just to be clear, um, I keep saying men who have sex with men because it's an umbrella. Um, it covers a wide variety of men's sexualities, including men who identify as straight, but still have sex with other men because language and our ability to talk about sex and gender is just kind of a wild thing right now. And we have all sorts of uh, mix and match versions going on. And so uh, that's the most uh, precise way of putting it is that men who have sex with men. Um, so I know it might sound a little clunky or weird, and I just wanted to kind of um, explain why I chose that particular term. And it's one that most of the um, articles and studies use as well. Now, again, I want to say that I still think that the risks are relatively low for the average person. The main worry now is more about the potential for the disease to become endemic in animals outside of Africa, which would mean it would have more chances to infect people and more chances to develop into something more serious. We were actually lucky back in 2003 that the disease did not become endemic in the Midwest. This was during the outbreak caused by prairie dogs that had been infected with monkeypox by rodents imported from Ghana. Now, as an aside, African giant rats, despite the possibility of them carrying monkeypox, um, and I'm not even sure that that was the vector, uh, they are amazing and adorable, and I have probably talked about them before on the show. Um, they are just adorable. I know a lot of people don't like rodents, but they're really cute. And they have been trained to actually locate landmines in some uh, places in Africa. And so they are also really uh, good, useful boys and girls. And um, yeah, I'm not going to say and non-binary pals because I don't know... Um, <laughs> I think that uh, most animals are can be described by their sex rather than a gender. Um, obviously, there. I was I was watching something this morning um, before I went to work about uh, the animals that have the most uh, same sex partnerships. Um, you know, birds that you know nest with two females or two males and things like that. So that was on my mind, but I think that gender is a pretty uniquely human kind of thing. Um, I mean, there's a lot of animals that, uh, you know, switch sex or do things that are different in that sort of way, but I don't know. I'm going to stop because that is a whole different conversation that I'm not uh, prepared to get into tonight. Uh, I apologize for wandering off down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Okay. Now, again, I say we were lucky during uh, that outbreak because almost 300 of the animals, both uh, African uh, rodents and prairie dogs, were never found. And so, yeah. We narrowly escaped having monkeypox establish itself in a wild animal population in North America, suggests Anne Rimioin an epidemiologist at the University of California at Los Angeles who has long studied the disease in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, we know the disease can jump both from we know diseases in general can jump both from animals to humans and from humans to animals. And so I previously talked about how humans have infected white-tailed deer 
minks, and even cats and dogs with SARS-CoV-2. And while that's also a worry, that's not what we're talking about tonight. Monkeypox reservoirs in wild animals outside of Africa is a scary scenario, says Bertram Jacobs, a virologist at Arizona State University in Tempe, who studies vaccinia, the pox virus that was used as a smallpox vaccine. People with active monkeypox are being asked to stay away from pets until they heal. The European Food Safety Authority states that no animals have been yet found to be infected by the agency, but they also stated that, quote, close collaboration between human and veterinary public health authorities is needed to manage exposed, exposed pets and prevent the disease from being transmitted to wildlife. Because, um, yeah, that's a big problem. For now, most officials are simply being cautious. The relatively small number of human cases means that there are it's not a huge amount of opportunities for spread. However, uh, researchers do worry about pet rodents in particular, uh, as well as wild rodents, which make up some 40% of all mammals. Uh, rodents are pretty are a pretty big deal. Uh, and of course, rodents, uh, wild rodents are known to come in contact with human refuse, uh, which could have contaminated items such as clothing or bedclothes or any sort of other uh, contaminated refuse. And what's interesting about this is we actually don't even know the exact reservoir for the monkeypox virus in Africa. It was first identified in a lab in Copenhagen uh, in 1958 in research mon monkeys that came from Asia, but scientists now believe the primates had to have caught it from an African source because all examples of zoonotic infection of humans can be traced to African animals. Only six wild animals trapped in Africa have been found to carry the virus. Three rope squirrels, a Gambian rat, a shrew, and a sooty mangabee monkey. We still poorly understand the current reservoir other than that it's rodents, says Grant McFadden, a pox virus researcher who is also based at ASU. But it can definitely take hold in other animals. In 1964 outbreak in Rotterdam, the, in the Netherlands, at, at a Rotterdam Netherlands zoo, sickened giant anteaters, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, a gibbon, and a marmoset. The researchers routinely and researchers routinely infect lab animals with the virus in order to learn more about it. Unfortunately, uh, we've also talked extensively on this show about uh, the issues and need for and need to get away from uh, using animals in laboratory settings. Uh, so I don't want to belabor that too much tonight, but obviously there's a lot going on in that as well. And so pox viruses also don't require a specific host receptor the way many other viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, do. So basically, they need the cell to have a specific receptor on it in order to infect that cell. And so because pox viruses don't have that, it allows them to infect a large variety of mammalian cells. Vaccinia can even infect fruit flies, 
as well as cows and people, according to David Evans, a pox virus researcher at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, uh, Canada. So yeah, uh, fruit flies and people are in a lot of ways similar because obviously they are a model animal uh, that we use in the lab, but they're also pretty darn different. Um, so a disease that can affect them and can infect us is pretty good at, uh, getting into the system of animals. Now, whether or not an animal can become a reservoir for a disease generally depends on how well they're able to defend against a virus. Pox viruses tend to take the fight to the immune system. They have a relatively large amount of genes, around 200, and around half of those are used to undermine a host's immune response. Some viruses run and hide or are stealthy, avoiding direct contact with elements of the immune system, McFadden says. Pox viruses, by and large, stand up and fight. Their defenses rely, their defense relies heavily on genes scattered around their genome that code for poorly understood proteins with domains known as enchiron repeats. The repeats are a kind of molecular flypaper that stick to the host proteins involved in mounting an immune response, notes Evans. Orthopox viruses have these arrays of enchiron repeats, and most of them we don't really know what they target, Evans says, but the bottom line is that those probably hold the key to trying to understand why it is that some of the viruses have the host range that they do. And again, a big problem is that this is a disease that hasn't really been well studied. I'm not going to say it's because the disease is mainly found in Africa, um, but also is not necessarily as deadly as other um, diseases found in Africa, but I'm not going to suggest that it's not. I'm going to heavily imply that that may be a big factor. Um, another big factor is, of course, always the capitalist one, which is that a disease that doesn't infect many people isn't going to make a lot of money for the pharmaceutical company that develops a, uh, treatment for it, uh, you know, unless it's a disease that people get because they get something else that's more common. So um, we've seen over the years uh, some really terrible uh, price gouging and just awful behavior by pharmaceutical people. Uh, I'm, I am, of course, thinking of uh, enemy of the show, uh, Martin Screlly, uh, who took a relatively unknown drug or relatively uh, a drug that was only used mostly in patients with HIV and AIDS and, you know, jacked up the price immensely in order to make uh, larger and larger profits. But generally, these kinds of diseases don't get a lot of interest because there's not a lot of money to be made there. So, yes. One of the challenges has been a lack of interest, says Lisa Hensley, a microbiologist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture who began doing monkeypox research in 2001 as part of a U.S. Army lab. 
We've recognized that this is a disease we need to worry about and that we really don't know as much as we think we know. Ha, huh. so yes, this is this is fun. Um, again, 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 I want to caution that this is not a uh, point of panic. We are not, we don't need to panic right now. There is no reason to suspect that this is going to become the next COVID-19. Uh, it's just that it is something that we need to get a handle on and need to be able to uh, get under control in order to prevent these kinds of knock-on effects of creating new reservoirs outside of Africa and, um, you know, really making this a bigger problem than it is. And so we really need to ramp up our ability to find people who are infected, treat them, um, do some studying on how good the vaccine is against this strain, and really kind of, uh, like I said, button this up, get it under control, and hopefully we will not have to uh, talk about monkeypox again very much in the future because there won't be global outbreaks like there are now. Um, so yeah, there's people in Canada who have it, the US, Australia, uh, mostly in Europe, some in the Middle East. Um, I don't know if there were any in Southeast Asia. I don't remember seeing any spots on the map, but it's definitely uh, in a lot of places at this point because unfortunately it's another problem with all of these infectious diseases is the ease of international travel at this point. Um, we are unfortunately just going to continue to have things like this happen because of the ease of international travel, the ease of people who would never have once been able to meet one another, being able to meet each other, and to, frankly, swap diseases. Um, it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen, and it's going to continue to happen. Um, a lot of diseases are, you know, have a really high... Um, virulence. And so those don't tend to carry as well, but, uh, things that uh, viruses that don't kill their host pretty quickly have this ability to move out from where they originally were to other places. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a thing to be aware of and to watch out for. And, um, especially if you are a man who has sex with other men, um, you know, obviously take some extra precautions just in case, um, because we do want to try and get this under control. Um, and again, that is only because of the prevalence of it among that population. And, uh, if you are anyone and you meet someone new and you plan to be in their personal space very intimately, just, you know, have a little bit of caution, but don't, you don't need to run out and buy a um, hazmat suit <laughs> anytime soon. Um, yeah. So that's enough about monkeypox for tonight. Let us move on now to a um, to a short little story, and then we will take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. So before we break, I want to just... Uh, talk about an infographic that I saw in this week's um, MMWR, which is the 
mortality and morbidity weekly report. Uh, a distinctly low number of Americans are protecting themselves from the sun. A cohort of adults were asked if they wear sunscreen when outside for an hour or more on a sunny day. Results were divided by age group and gender. <sighs> I do wonder when one day, maybe some magical day, uh, some of these studies will be able to uh, divide these groups up by uh, male, female, and non-binary people. Uh, but, you know, obviously that's another day's rant. They found that for all age groups, more women than men wore sunscreen. The highest level, though, was a mere 30.9% for women aged 45 to 64. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm just as guilty about this. I am not great about remembering to put on sunscreen, but I'm actually working on, even before I saw this graphic, I was working on turning over a new leaf this summer. I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be vigilant, uh, to wear sunscreen if I'm going to be leaving the house and being outside for more than a few minutes. Um, and obviously you want to make sure that those sunscreens don't contain ingredients harmful to ocean life. If you're going to be anywhere near the ocean, or even if, I mean, some of water goes directly to the ocean. So really just leave those on the shelf. Um, and so I think it's oxybenzone, but don't quote me. Um, I don't remember if that's what it is offhand. We talked about it, uh, either last week or the week before though on the show. Now, one thing that struck me is the disparity between men and women. I've actually been watching YouTube videos lately, um, where people look at a subreddit, uh, called pointlessly gendered, and it really is eye-opening. Um, it is a great example of a bunch of things, but one of the things that it's a great example is how toxic masculinity hurts both men and women. And so there are a lot of people out there who, uh, will tweet things like, you know, um, taking care of, like literally basically like, oh, well, taking care of your body is a woman's, uh, thing. That's, that's feminine. Real men don't, you know, wear lotion or sunscreen or do any of these things. And it's just like, ah, like why the only person you're hurting is yourself here. You're not, uh, you know, standing up for the patriarchy by just hurting your own self. That's, it's so terrible. And I don't think they have any way of really seeing that. And it's very sad. Um, I, you know, I know people don't, there are some people, there's a subsection of people who think that, um, you know, toxic masculinity, that we only think about it in terms of women, but goodness gracious, does it hurt men too. And so, uh, several surveys have also found that men are less likely than women to do anything quote unquote green, like use reusable shopping bags or recycle. Now, honestly, both of those activity have arguments against them that are valid. And we might discuss, uh, sort of green things in a future episode because, um, I obviously, uh, have feelings about those sorts of things. Uh, not that I don't do both of those things, uh, when I can, I try and re use reusable shopping bags. Actually, 
I have to say I don't at the moment, but we get uh, paper bags, which we do recycle um, because we tend to get um, our groceries. Uh, we usually have someone pick them out for us and I pick them up um, from the grocery store just because I have a lot of things going on. It's not just COVID-19 anymore. We don't buy a lot of things that need to be like carefully uh, curated. And so it works out pretty well for us. Anywho. <laughs> and so, um, you know, this is a real issue that men continue to see things like caring for the environment as a women's sphere or to assume that markets or government or the government, which are also obviously largely male dominated, will solve the issue without them needing to do anything they perceive as feminine. Um, now, I actually saw an ad the other day for Old Spice Lotion with the tagline that that said, because men have skin too. And I actually have to say that that was a rather good message. Um, you know, while I'm generally against dividing grooming and self-care items by gender, unless they are actually only for one gender specifically, and those are few and far between, I think it's good for companies to be trying to reach men. Now, this is despite the fact that I'm 100% positive that the reason they're trying to do that is because of concerns about market share and not about the men themselves and, you know, have, giving them access to, um, you know, self-care. Because men deserve self-care just as much as women do. And that includes sunscreen. <laughs> men are more likely to be diagnosed with melanoma skin cancer due to genetic reasons, but also due to the fact that they are often out in the sun more than women. Um, as a general rule, you know, these things are less so than in the past, obviously. Um, but they're also less likely to be protected via sunscreen or protective clothing. And so an interesting study from 2020 actually looked at gender rather than sex, hooray, and found that the highest risk people were gender non-conforming people. Boo, <laughs> because I am among those. <laughs> that is my cohort. Ah. Um, it was followed by men and then both trans men and, and trans women, with cis women being, again, at the lowest end um, for risk. And now they did note the small sample size of gender nonconforming people, which made their confidence interval rather wide and might've pushed them a little bit higher than men. Um, and obviously they also noted that this relied on self-reporting of skin cancer and also suggested lower rates of overall medical care may account for missed data about trans folks of all uh, parts of the spectrum. But the moral of the story is that regardless of your sex or gender, you should be wearing sunscreen. Get better at it. I'm going to try and do it with you. I'm going to try and get better at it myself. So yeah, that is the moral for today's uh, episode. And that means it is time to take a break for some show promos and some PSAs. And then we will come back and uh, talk about some more things. So you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, 
women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening to evidence-based radio. And we are going to shift gears now, and we are going to talk about a subject that always interests me, the ocean. Now, despite most of the planet being covered in oceans, uh, as you probably know, we still know a vanishingly small amount about what happens below the waves. And considering the amount of world-changing damage we're doing to the environment, it's probably a good idea to get a better sense of what is happening to the ocean and what organisms are actually in the ocean. Fancy that. So the Terra Oceans Consortium is currently on a mission to collect water and marine life samples from around the world in order to help us better know how the oceans will respond to climate change. They're focused mostly on plankton, which absorb half of the human-generated carbon in the atmosphere and produce half of the oxygen we use to, you know, breathe. Using some of these samples, a group of researchers at the Ohio State University have identified 5,500 previously unknown RNA viruses and presented their results in the journal Science. A small portion of these may help researchers better understand how to help plankton plankton, uh, to better sequester carbon in the deep ocean. 
They also found that these viruses had quote-unquote stolen genes from the organisms they infected, which helped researchers determine what hosts they infected and how they affected those hosts. The findings are important for model development and prediction and predicting what is happening with carbon in the correct direction and at the correct magnitude, said Ahmed Zayed, a research scientist in microbiology and co-first author of the study. Lead author Matthew Sullivan, a professor of microbiology, suggests we may be able in future to engineer viruses on a massive scale and use them to fine-tune the biological pump for carbon storage. As humans put more carbon into the atmosphere, we're dependent on the massive buffering capacity of the ocean to slow climate change. We're we're growing more and more aware that we might need to tune the pump at the scale of the ocean, Sullivan said. We'd be interested in viruses that could tune toward a more digestible carbon, which allows the system to grow, produce bigger and bigger cells, and sink. And if, the, and if it sinks, we gain another few hundred or a thousand years from the worst effects of climate change. I think society is basically counting on that kind of technological fix, but it is a complex foundational science problem to tease apart. And so the team used computational techniques to match the RNA virus's stolen genetic sequences to the organisms that they originated in. Overall, 44,000 sequences were analyzed and revealed that there were four basic communities divided by ecological zone, Arctic, Antarctic, temperate and tropic epipelagic, which is the layer closest to the surface where sunlight allows for photosynthesis, and temperate and tropical mesopelagic, which is the layer just below that, the epipelagic. They found that these categories roughly matched those of previous marine DNA virus species that the team had already identified. However, it seems that the RNA viruses do have one difference from other organisms. They don't seem to mind the cold. When it comes to diversity, viruses don't care about the temperature, Syed said. There were more apparent interactions between viruses and cellular life in polar areas, That tells us the high diversity we're looking at in polar areas is basically because we have more viral species competing for the same host. We see fewer species of hosts, but more viral species infecting the same host. The team used three different methods for connecting various viruses to their hosts. First, they inferred based on the classification of the virus and their probable connection to certain marine plankton. They then made predictions based on how quantities of viruses and hosts matched up because their populations are dependent. And finally, they looked at the integration of RNA viruses in cellular genomes of plankton. The viruses we're studying don't insert themselves into the host genome, but many get integrated into the genome by accident. When it happens, it's a clue about the host because if you find a virus signal within a host genome, it's because at some point the virus was inside the cell, said co-author, co-first author Guillermo Dominguez Huerta, a former postdoc in Sullivan's lab. 
While most double-stranded DNA viruses infect bacteria and archaea, which are abundant in the ocean, the analysis of the, uh, analysis of the RNA viruses found that they mostly infect fungi and microbial eukaryotes, and some invertebrates. Only a very few infect bacteria. The work uncovered 72 discernible, discernible functionally different auxiliary metabolic genes, or AMGs, among 95 RNA viruses, which made it much easier to identify their host species and what exactly their mechanism for adjusting the host to help their proliferation. They also found 1,243 RNA virus species involved in carbon export, and at least 11 were suggested to be involved in promoting carbon sequestration on the ocean floor. Two viruses that infect algae were selected as the most promising to follow up on. Modeling is getting to the point where we can take bags of genes from these large-scale genomic surveys and paint metabolic maps, said Sullivan, also a professor of civil, environmental, and geodetic engineering and founding director of Ohio State's Center of Micro Microbiome Science. I'm envisioning our use of AMGs and these viruses that are predicated predicted to infect particular hosts to actually dial up those metabolic maps toward the carbon we need. It's through that metabolic activity that we probably need to act. So if we can get that going, that'd be pretty excellent. Um, I definitely think that we need to work on how we uh, sequester carbon that is in the atmosphere because yeah, as you all know, we're not doing enough to actually stop putting it into the atmosphere, and we're not going to anytime soon. Um, as much as a lot of companies and politicians play lip service to uh, wanting to engage in uh, environmentally friendly uh, practices, there is no uh, capitalistic reason to do that, and thus a lot of them just don't have any reason to do it. Um, and so, yeah, again, that's a whole, that's a whole argument slash discussion for a completely different, uh, day. Um, a lot of that is wrapped up in my feelings about things like recycling. Um, and so, yeah, anyways, maybe someday I will, uh, just take an evening to, uh, rant a little bit about that, but not tonight. Tonight, I actually have to admit something that is pretty crazy. Um, well, it's not that crazy, but let's, let's play it up a tiny bit. I actually saw a UAP, the fancy new name for UFOs, the other day. Now, I am 100% sure it was something that could have been identifiable, uh, just not by me. It didn't do anything weird that was against the laws of physics, but it was definitely unidentifiable and had that classic no engine noise of a UFO. And I generally hear uh, engine noises. I'm actually directly in the flight path of Cessnas uh, flying into the Northampton airport. And so I hear, uh, you know, engine noises all the time. Uh, you know, we're always getting planes flying over from Westover, things like that. 
Um, but this was, this was different. Um, it was a bright spot of light that moved across the sky and eventually disappeared behind, uh, the clouds. And now I'm almost certain it was just a metallic plane reflecting sunlight, but it was genuinely unidentifiable to me. And so, yeah, it was pretty impressive. Um, you know, I definitely don't think it was aliens. Definitely don't. Um, but it was something that genuinely was mysterious. Uh, I didn't get a picture of it. I'm very sad that I didn't because it would be cool to be like, look, I actually saw a UFO, but what are you going to do? Um, and so I'm actually kind of delighted to find out that NASA has announced that the science mission directorate will be studying the phenomena of UAPs. Part of the reason for switching the term from UFO to unidentified aerial phenomena is to indicate that some of these objects are probably not flying at all, but are rather optical illusions or atmospheric uh, happenings. Thomas Zuberchin, head of the directorate, notes that NASA doesn't expect to identify these phenomena when it releases its report next year, but rather that it expects to determine what data NASA has or could gather in order to better understand and scientifically study these phenomena. Zuberchin noted that they plan to try to, quote, take a field that is data poor and make it into something that's data rich. Now, obviously, NASA does a ton of observations on the Earth, both from uh, Earth-based instruments and from space-based instruments. So there's actually a bunch of satellites that NASA controls that look down at the Earth, not out uh, into space. And so those actually um, you know, gather a immense amount of data in a variety of wavelengths. And so some of that data could actually already help with this. Um, you know, if somebody sat and sifted through some of this data, they might find things that match some of what is happening out there. And, um, you know, if they find that new instrumentation is needed, then they, you know, would be in a position to, um, you know, work on crafting that if they were, you know, obviously to get funding. (sighs) And so um, he noted that it makes sense for NASA to study the issue because there could be unidentified atmospheric phenomena that would be a candidate for scientific exploration. For instance, we only learned that lightning produces antimatter in the atmosphere around a decade ago. And this could aid in another area that NASA plays a role in, aviation safety. If there's something out there that pilots should be aware of, NASA would like to know that so that they can share that information. And on the infinitely small chance that something is from somewhere beyond Earth's local area, Zuberchin reminds though, reminded those at the press conference he was giving uh, that NASA has an active astrobiology program. <laughs> now, I'm actually, again, really excited to see what the agency produces. And so, yeah, that is pretty exciting. I think it's pretty cool. I think it is going to be a lot of um, interesting information. Obviously not the kind of thing that UFO buffs want to see. They want to know that they're actually getting things 
from uh, outside of the uh, local area. By local area, I mostly mean like, you know, the space directly around Earth, because some of this might be that you're seeing low Earth orbit satellites and other things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I... Well, I do not think that UFOs are uh, aliens. I think there is some really interesting uh, video out there and some really interesting sightings of really interesting phenomena that don't yet have good explanations. Uh, you know, there's there's certain things that are really easy to uh, debunk, like, um, you know, whenever someone talks about rods in video, those are almost always bugs. And even if someone says, oh, we're in a place where there was no bugs, it's still bugs. I'm 99.9% .9 certain. But there are some videos that are genuinely interesting. Um, so yeah. And like I said, I now have had an experience and it was a weird thing that I saw. I don't have a good explanation for it. So I'm glad that NASA's looking into this. Okay. Let us move now to talking about the first results announced on the composition of the samples returned from the asteroid Ryugu. Um, and so uh, if you remember back, the Hayabasha 2 uh, lander was able to scoop up some uh, dirt from the, or some material from the asteroid Ryugu and brought it back to Earth. And so the analysis shows that the asteroid is most likely a piece of the same dust that coalesced into our sun at the beginning of the solar system some four and a half billion years ago. So the way you get a solar system is you start with an accretion disk and so, and then it coalesces into a sun at the center and then planets outside and, you know, there's a bunch of debris left over sometimes and, or is left over. And so that usually coalesces into um, asteroids and comets. We previously only had a handful of these rocks to study, and all of them were meteorites that fell to Earth and were stored in museums for decades to centuries, which changed their compositions, said geochemist Nicholas Daumfuss, one of the three University of Chicago researchers who collaborated with the international team led by Japanese scientists. Having pristine samples from outer space is simply incredible. They are witnesses from parts of the solar system that we have not otherwise explored. And again, so this is a really unique opportunity for exploring material from space that would never otherwise have been able to be sampled as it literally would not have been able to be found on Earth. Usually, all we get to study of asteroids is the pieces that are big enough to make it to the ground as meteorites, said UChicago chemist Andrew M. Davis, another member of the team. If you took this handful and dropped it in the atmosphere, it would burn up. You would lose it, and a lot of evidence about the history of this asteroid would go with it. We really haven't had a sample like this before. It's spectacular. And so Delphis and Davis are part of a team studying the chemical and isotopic compositions of the grains to better understand their history. The third science, Reka Yokochi, is part of a team that is analyzing the gases that were trapped in the capsule or in the sample itself. The rock is similar to meteorites that are classified as Ivuna-type 
carbonaceous chondrites, which again have a similar composition to that measured from the sun. Interestingly, the sample shows signs of having been surrounded by water at some point. One must picture an aggregate of ice and dust floating in space that turned into a giant mud ball when ice was melted by nuclear energy from the decay of radioactive elements that were present in the asteroid when it formed, said Daufus. But now the sample, and the asteroid itself presumably, is relatively dry. The research indicates that this watery phase happened around 5 million years after the solar system formed. This is interesting because it hints at a connection between comets and some asteroids like Ryugu and their formation. By examining these samples, we can constrain the temperatures and conditions that must have been occurring in their lifetimes and try to understand what happened, Yokochi explained. She compared the work to trying to understand the process for how a soup was made, but only with the soup itself and not a recipe. We can take the soup and separate the ingredients and try to tell from their conditions how much it was heated and in what order. And as with other samples from outer space, a portion of the material will be put away for researchers in the future to explore with more advanced tools. Now, this is actually also part of a larger project that will include samples from the asteroid Bennu, as well as from unexplored parts of the moon, Mars, and Phobos eventually. It has been very much under the radar for the public and some decision makers, but we are entering a new era of planetary exploration that is unprecedented in history, said Daufus. Our children and grandchildren will see returned fragments of asteroids, Mars, and hopefully other planets when they visit museums. And so, yeah, speaking of Mars, let us move on and finish up tonight by talking about a uh, fan favorite around here, uh, the Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, so, yes, uh, Ingenuity continues to delight and surprise everyone. Uh, but the little copter, uh, that could has run into a slight issue. The inclinometer, which consists of two accelerometers that are supposed to measure gravity before takeoff, uh, they've failed basically. Um, they are no longer working as they should be. And so without it, without them, ingenuity doesn't have the ability to orient relative to the surface of the planet. Um, as one headline put it, uh, ingenuity has vertigo. Uh, and so obviously being able to orient is a bit of a necessity. Now, while the helicopter has had a few hiccups along the way, mostly due to power issues and lack of sunlight to charge its uh, batteries, this is the first major technical issue. But have no fear, NASA planned for this possibility. The craft has so far, far flat flown 28 flights. That was too many Fs. <laughs> and NASA hopes that it will continue to add to the tally. Now, of course, at some point, the craft will most likely crash, but that will actually be a good learning experience for the NASA engineers to help them design even more robust flyers for the future, because this is definitely meant to be a work in progress and a first step. But again, NASA isn't giving up on their current craft just yet. 
The team plans to repurpose the accelerometer in the craft's inertial measurement unit into an, quote, acceptable fallback that will allow Ingenuity to resume flying. This required them to send a software patch to reorient the device to its new job. But again, having anticipated this possibility, the software patch had already been written by the team. Uh, So hopefully sometime soon, Ingenuity will take flight on its 29th flight and head southwest to maintain a connection to the Perseverance rover, which is continuing to collect rocks for future returns to Earth. And so, yeah, a helicopter that they thought would crash pretty much on the first flight is now uh, headed into its 29th and probably after that 30th and maybe even more flights. Um, it's just spectacular and amazing. And um, yeah, it's it's so cool. Um, to have a helicopter on Mars is just, you know, there's a lot of things that are bad in the world. There's a lot of things that are terrible. But when I think about that, it makes me smile. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, please do come back next week. Uh, I should be here and have more stories. Um, and uh, if anyone is waiting on that essay, which I don't know what anyone is, but if you are, I am still going to do it. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, I'm thinking I might devote some time to it during uh, my vacation at the end of the month. So it will eventually show up. All right. That is all for tonight. Have a great evening. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.